Hi, I'm Ryan Jude. And I'm Helen Avery, and you're listening to Green is the New Finance from the Green Finance Institute. Today, we'll be talking with Hannah Dillon, head of the Zero Carbon Campaign, about carbon pricing. What is it? Why do we need it? And what will it mean for us all? Until it costs too much to do it, people will continue doing it and they will continue profiting for it. And we, we sort of use this campaign line that if, if no one pays, everyone does. And in this, this context, that is incredibly true. So I, I cannot uh, overstate the importance of carbon pricing and the role that it can play. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining us today for this episode about a very important topic that I'm really looking forward to talking about. And welcome, Helen. How are you doing? Hi, yeah. Yeah, um, I'm very well, thank you. And uh, happy there are some signs of spring. Thank God. Yeah, I can't believe it's spring already. This year has flown by. I know, indeed. And it's getting closer and closer to COP. Um, and it's speaking... <laughs> Today we'll be talking about something that could be really, really important at COP, but it's certainly important in reaching net zero. Yeah, really, really important. And so for those listening at home, our guest today is Hannah Dillon. Hannah is head of the Zero Carbon Campaign, which is all about introducing a fair price on carbon to ensure that we account for the true costs of fossil fuel pollution. The Zero Carbon Campaign was launched in summer 2019 by OVO Energy Founder and CEO Stephen Fitzpatrick. And they published their white paper last year, the contents of which we will be discussing with Hannah later. Yeah, it's a really fantastic report on so many levels and definitely worth a read. Um, but there's, you know, there's so much interest around carbon pricing, which is you know, quite a technical subject. Um, but as I think we've emphasized here at least five times already, it's a really important one. <laughs> so um, especially as we're sort of talking about practical solutions to meet net zero. So, so really excited. Exactly. And we will also aim to address some of the misconceptions that you may have heard around the impact of carbon pricing on our lives. Brilliant. So let's get Hannah on. So welcome, Hannah. Thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm well, thank you. Spring is on the way. Life is looking a little bit more optimistic. Well, speaking of optimism, I am feeling increasingly optimistic about the impact carbon pricing can have in helping us achieve our net zero targets. So it's great to have you on today, Hannah, to tell the listeners all about it. So to start with, could you explain why such a charge is so important and what it would help achieve? Yeah, sure. So um, at the moment, we are enabling a huge amount of greenhouse gas emissions to be pumped into the atmosphere with very little restriction. And we all understand the consequences of that, not just because we're seeing them live in front of us, but also we're seeing them affect people that might not traditionally have been affected by climate change. And that's making a lot of people very concerned. And this could be described as a market failure because what we failed to do is price in the sort of societal and planetary health costs of greenhouse gas emissions into production, into services, etc. And unless we get a grip on this, we are, just don't even have the remotest hope of achieving net zero, let alone real zero. Until it costs too much to do it, people will continue doing it and they will continue profiting for it. And we we sort of use this campaign line that if if no one pays, everyone does. And in this this context, that is incredibly true. So I, I cannot <laughs> I cannot uh, overstate, or maybe I have, but I cannot overstate the importance of carbon pricing and the role that it can play. So we have the why it's needed. Could you just run through exactly what a carbon charge or carbon tax is exactly? 
Yes, sure. So carbon pricing is a bit of a misnomer because it's not all actually just about the carbon. We're essentially talking about all greenhouse gas emissions and a carbon price is where you attach a cost to the production of those greenhouse gas emissions in the hope that that will stop people wanting to produce them. Um, And there's a few different ways you can do it. So you can apply what we call an upstream carbon price, which is essentially where you apply a cost right at the top of the chain where greenhouse gas emissions are produced, either through extraction of fossil fuels, for example, or you can apply a downstream price, which is the kind of aggregate carbon cost of producing a certain product. So your washing machine, for example, uh, at the Zero Carbon campaign, we're, we're more in favour of upstream prices, but we can get into that. Um, and, and there's two predominant methods of pricing carbon. So one is a carbon tax, Ryan, which you mentioned, which is essentially you set a cost for the production of a unit of greenhouse gas emissions. Um, And then the more complicated system is emissions trading, where you essentially set up a market in carbon emissions, which has credits on it, which correspond to a certain volume of emissions. And those involved can trade, buy, sell emissions based on what they're producing. And then at the end of any given trading period, you say, here are all of my credits, which stack up to all of the emissions that I've produced. And it's worth pointing out that we have some of these methods already in operation in in the UK. Can you just talk us through what we have? Yes, sure. I'll try and keep it simple because it's actually quite a complicated landscape. Um, We actually have what you can call a hybrid system where we do have a carbon tax and an emissions trading system um, or an ETS. So the UK ETS is what we've just set up having left the European Union. We used to be part of the European system. Um, So it covers about one third of the emissions produced in the UK. And then on top of that, we have uh, a carbon tax, which is called the carbon price support. um, And that is in the power sector. So a lot of um, people end up paying both both of those prices, which combined are called the carbon price floor. Hmm. And I I expect we'll get into it a bit later uh, in even more detail. But what don't we have at the moment that would be useful? Um, (laughs) Something that's (laughs) easy to understand. Uh, So I mentioned I mentioned that we only price emissions across one third of our economy. The the big gaps really to highlight are we don't um, price some of the more high emitting heat sources, especially in residential homes. So for example, the gas that we use to heat our homes um, is what we might call artificially cheap because it doesn't have a proper carbon price on it. And also emissions from agriculture. Some of the inputs might be, but the outputs from agriculture like nitrous oxide and methane emissions, those do not currently have a price attached. And I gather from the reports, many reports that Zero Carbon Campaign has put out, and we'll talk about those in a minute, that many other countries have already sort of made the move to having a carbon price. I don't know if you can sort of talk us through how many of them and what they're doing. Yeah, sure. I I believe, according to the World Bank, who are very focused on carbon pricing and have some very useful dashboards, if anyone's interested, that approximately 22% of greenhouse gas emissions uh, across the world currently have a price attached. Um, the problem is that the price is often really low. So the International Monetary Fund estimate that the average carbon price is about two US dollars, which um, of course is prohibitive for some people in some countries, but generally that's not going to be high enough to drive the change required to achieve net zero. Um, There's a lot we can learn from what's gone wrong in the past. And I think the most most kind of well-known example is with the Gilets Jaunes protest in France where for a host of different reasons, changes to the carbon tax were deemed to hit those, let's say, farmers in rural areas the hardest because the result was that the prices of diesel just went through the roof. But also there was a perception that um, 
a lot of the compensation mechanisms were going to businesses whilst people were being left to pay the cost. So I think there's a lot that we can hit, we can learn from that. The, the example I always hear, I mean, we've talked a bit about the EU. Sweden has a super long-standing carbon tax. I think it's nearly 30 years old, which appears to be having a positive impact on emissions reductions and not hampering economic growth. But um, British Columbia is usually the example that's put forwards where they have what they describe as an economy-wide carbon tax um, that has had uh, helped drive progress on emissions reductions in BC versus kind of across Canada more broadly. And it's it's got a relative amount of public support. And what they do is they recycle the revenues back to some low and moderate income households, but they also use the revenue to offset um, taxes elsewhere as well. So you've talked about the public support there in British Columbia. But what is the public opinion like around this in the UK at the minute? Would you say that you think there is general support for what the Zero Carbon campaign is asking for? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think concern about public backlash is possibly what's hampered progress on this topic to date. And that's that's really been our starting point for all of our thinking. Um, interesting you ask about public opinion. We actually conducted some polling recently, uh, which we released last week on this topic and I think it fits it fits nicely in the context of the the discourse coming out of the government, who we understand are looking at carbon pricing across different sectors of the economy, which is absolutely something that we welcome because we've been banging on about it for a year or so now. Essentially, we think that there is a way through that's both publicly and politically acceptable, provided that a carbon price is applied to the producers of greenhouse gas emissions. So I mentioned that upstream versus downstream cost that those who are perceived to be and are producing the most emissions are actually paying this price rather than being let off through tax breaks or various other mechanisms. And that where this does cause cost increases in high carbon products, firstly, that those who really can't afford to pay are protected from doing so. And there's various ways that you can do that. But that there is a concerted effort made, whether through investment of the revenues or otherwise, to scale access to alternatives. So I mentioned that gilet example. We can't just have a high blunt pricing instrument that people can't get away from or escape at all because you want it to be a behavioural change signal. So you, you want it to work rather than just cost people lots of money. Um, and actually with our polling, we found we, we were very specific about, you know, the fact that this might lead to increased costs of certain high, high carbon goods. And we found super high levels of support. I think it was something like seven in 10 of the 2000 people who responded supported a carbon price on the biggest polluters provided that some of the revenue was used and invested to support lower income households through the transition. So there's definitely a way through. There's also a very easy way of putting people off a carbon price, which uh, was a nice little game being played in the press a few weeks ago uh, (laughs) about a meat tax and uh, sausages having a tax attached to them. And number 10 have come out and said, we're not going to put a tax on sausages. But um, yeah, we think we think that there is a way through. We think it has to be carefully done and you have to think about different sectors differently and the policies that need to sit alongside carbon pricing. Well, that's good to hear. It's good to hear that there's been such a positive response and we will definitely be talking about the so-called meat tax and cheese tax <laughs> later on and why those terms are slightly misleading. And also other myths that definitely need busting around carbon pricing. But look, we've had a great introduction there to what carbon pricing is and we've skirted around the edges of this. But in the immediate term, what are your campaign's main asks for the UK government? What is it you want to see them doing? Um, Well, I think primarily what we're asking for is for a stronger, fairer, a more consistent approach to carbon pricing that ensures that the brunt of cost of decarbonisation 
are borne by those consumers and businesses that have the highest carbon footprint. We would also like the UK government to utilise domestic ambition as a core rallying cry at COP26 to try and bring together some sort of multilateral collaboration to further agreements on global carbon pricing, because obviously it's not just about the UK, it's about driving progress around the world. So we've spoken a bit about domestic carbon pricing. I think now that we have a UK ETS that is set to stay, so we've got some we've got some core asks around how that progresses. For example, I mentioned that we only cover one third of emissions. Our immediate asks on that front are that we align the emissions trading system with our net zero targets. But there's also a crucial point around the allocation of free allowances, which is essentially on the emissions trading scheme to deal with concerns about what's called carbon leakage, which I'm sure we can come on to. You have to have a certain amount of free allowances, otherwise the carbon cost might become too high for those involved in the market. And whilst we think that the reasons behind the allocation of uh, free permits are completely valid, um, there's been some research that's from, uh, I think it's the European Court of Auditors, that's found that the way that free allocations are given out is not necessarily as tied to threat of leakage or threat of trade, trade exposure as it might be. And then in terms of how carbon pricing might be extended across the economy, we think that there's a case for a hybrid system rather than predominantly focusing on emissions trading. So if you think of someone like me or a business that's relatively small and doesn't have the infrastructure or capacity to trade on a complicated emissions <laughs> trading market, we're trying to focus very specifically on where a tax might be more appropriate. And if we are going to implement a tax, how we can make sure that it is, as I've said, effective and fair. I think a lot of people listening will be wondering, is there a price in mind that you have? Is there a level you've been advocating for through your reports? Uh, yes, there is. Um, so we have taken our advice from a few different sources. There's there's an organisation or collective called the Carbon Pricing Leadership Coalition. And they do a lot of br- brilliant work bringing together organisations, world leaders, finance leaders, ministers, etc., to talk about carbon pricing, advocate for it, share learnings about what works and what doesn't. And they formed a high-level commission on carbon pricing that uh, ultimately recommended that the, there's a price range, but really you want to be at around £50 in 2020 and £75 per tonne of CO2 in 2030 to drive the level of emissions abatement required to hit net zero. So those are the prices that we're talking about. So you mentioned 50 to £75 as an aim for the price. Roughly, what's the price right now? Do we do we know? Oh, it's a very good question. Um, our price isn't actually up and running yet, even though the scheme is live. But in the European system, prices actually hit about €40 Euros per tonne a few weeks ago, which is way higher than it's ever been. So €40, Euros, that's about £35. So quite under the price we need. Um, But perhaps let's move on to busting myths. There have been some rather unhelpful responses to carbon pricing, as you mentioned. We talked about sausages and cheese earlier, and obviously (laughs) (laughs) Um, it's a valid concern. People are concerned about uh, the cost of goods going up. So how do you respond to those kinds of concerns? I mean, is, is that a myth that we need to bust right here? Yeah, look, I I don't think we're going to put a tax on cheese and sausages anytime soon. Uh, I'm just saying that as someone who's predominantly vegan. It's it's a totally understandable concern. I don't want to diminish that. There are people want to be able to afford their food. That is absolutely understandable. And that should be front of mind when we're thinking about carbon pricing and how it affects people. 
that's been our starting premise for all of the work that we've done. Um, pricing emissions in agriculture is relatively complicated and is going to need a lot of collaboration between the agricultural sector and the government. And there's a lot we can learn, for example, through countries like New Zealand, who actually are, are going through this at the moment. So New Zealand have an emissions trading system. The agricultural sector is not yet part of that, but they do produce a huge proportion of the country's greenhouse gas emissions. And so what the government have said is that within five years, if emissions from the sector haven't been got under control, they will be introduced to the emissions trading system. And so they formed a partnership over the next five years to try and resolve this concern before that has to happen. That is a model that I really think is exactly the sort of thing we should be thinking about in the UK. And in our report, we we did talk about a few preconditions for applying a price to emissions on agriculture. Um, things like being able to measure emissions properly and consistently and not for farmers and landowners having to bear the brunt of that cost. Um, other things we've spoken about is how we can um, level the playing field at the border with pricing. Now, there's a relative advantage for the UK here because our um, agricultural practices are predominantly relatively low carbon compared to some other countries, particularly kind of mass farming in the States, for example. Um, and the third thing on agriculture is that the sector stands quite a lot to gain from emissions pricing because they have the means to store a lot of emissions too and to remove a lot of emissions from the atmosphere. So with agriculture, we're suggesting something a lot more balanced that rewards those who are removing emissions from the agriculture, rewards changes in, changes in land use practices that are required to get to net zero. But ultimately, over time, once we've levelled the playing field by whether it's border, border taxation or something else, introducing a price because we believe that is going to be a helpful way of not only driving land use change but reducing the volume of emissions being produced by the sector so it's a lot more complicated than a meat tax we're proposing something more upstream rather than <laughs> downstream ultimately though the, the notion of carbon pricing is that high carbon goods will become more expensive and therefore people will stop buying them and others will stop producing them. So hopefully, Hannah, you've quelled concerns that the carbon price could lead to a price rise in agricultural produce. Um, what about the concerns about a carbon price resulting in an increase in gas prices that could impact those in fuel poverty disproportionately? I think those concerns are entirely legitimate. And it's one of the biggest challenges that we face with getting to net zero because emissions from particularly residential heating are going to have to come down and we're going to have to find ways to encourage that change. Gas is really interesting in that the, the relative carbon price of electricity versus gas in home heating is very distorted in terms of the carbon intensity of those products. So natural gas has a higher carbon intensity than electricity, particularly as we decarbonize the grid. But all of the policy costs of decarbonization have been put onto electricity bills, which mean that it's currently more expensive to heat your home with electricity than gas. This is a massive challenge that we need to overcome because until uh, installing and heating your home with a heat pump is cheaper than alternatives, people are just not going to do it, even, even people with disposable income who can afford to. Um, I think another good example is fuel duty. So we don't actually view that as being a carbon tax because that's not the sole purpose of that cost. But uh, where our commission has got to and what I absolutely agree with is that you know, just continuing to increase fuel duty is not going to stop people from using petrol and diesel. It's investment in alternatives. So in some of the research that we've commissioned that was looking at the distributional impacts of a carbon price at the levels that I mentioned, so 50 to 75 pounds on different households in the UK, we found that the majority of the 
the cost impacts could be mitigated if we recycled some of the revenue to support the poorest 30% of households. So there's a lot of ways you can do it. But in the longer term, we think that investment in energy efficiency retrofits in homes is the primary way that we are going to, and by investment, I mean government investment, um, support lower income households through the transition because a lot of people living in these houses don't have control over their own energy inputs. They might be rented, it might be social housing. It's quite difficult to expect them to make these changes. But through investment in energy efficiency, we can not just improve the quality of life in homes, but reduce the volume and emissions intensity of energy that is being used to heat homes. So you briefly referred to this earlier, but there's been noises coming out of Whitehall that the government has been looking at a carbon price very similar to what you've been suggesting. From what you've been hearing, are you happy with the rumours coming out or do you think this could be done in a better way still? Um, Yeah, I mean, I'd love to take credit for it all, but I don't think that's entirely realistic. (laughs) Um, No, I think it's so one of the one of the things that we're really clear on is that we have to think in a sector specific way here because you it's very nice to tell a neat story of the same price across all emissions across the entire economy and then across the whole world but it just from all the research that we've done it just doesn't feel realistic to treat it in that way so from what we're hearing the fact that carbon pricing is being viewed as a um, powerful tool in the collection of policies that we need to get to net zero is really positive a priority for us is ensuring that if this is going to be implemented it's done in the equitable way that we've discussed and then with regards to what we're hearing about the emissions trading system, which I've mentioned in the government, thinking about extending that to other sectors, again, there's a positive story to tell there. They've, um, they've committed to aligning, as I mentioned, the, the caps in the emissions trading system with our sixth carbon budget, so therefore with net zero. That's super positive. They've announced a higher floor price within that trading system than we'd expected. So initially that was going to be around £15 a tonne. Recently, it's been proposed to be around £22 a tonne. Now, of course, that's lower than we've talked about, but on a, on a market system, the, the price is likely to end up being higher than that, but that's the floor price. So there's a lot of really positive noises coming from various different departments on carbon pricing. And actually, I think that's really helpful momentum for us in the run-up to COP2, because as you'll know, and it is potentially an unfair amount of pressure to have at our door, but we are hosting it, so... So we kind of have to, but there's there's a there's a very big call for the UK to to kind of stand up and put policy foot first rather than just talking about our net zero commitment, which will be quite a few years old by the time COP comes around. But really showing that we mean it and putting our money where our mouth is. But yeah, lots more work to do as well. <laughs> and it also seems that the you know the government's making a push for border carbon adjustments. Can you just ex- explain the importance of those for especially for UK industry? Yes, of course. So essentially, it's a way of extending domestic carbon pricing policies to the border. So you place the same domestic, the same price that you use domestically on imports um, to essentially level the playing field between producers. So the advantages are this can stop heavy emitters moving their moving their kind of manufacturing or production abroad and stop what we call carbon leakage, which is the idea of emissions being placed elsewhere, because I think one of the dangers of net zero is that you just clean up your own domestic balance sheet but you just shovel your emissions somewhere where you don't have to account for them um but the third part of border adjustments which i don't think has necessarily been as as dominant in the discourse is that they can actually encourage other jurisdictions to be more ambitious on their own carbon pricing um because if you are for example a producer in china 
um, it's more likely that your government's going to want the revenue from carbon pricing than for you to ship something to the UK and pay the UK government that revenue. Mm. So there's a lot of benefits to border adjustments. That said, they're super complicated and there's <laughs> concern around violation with WTO trade laws. It's helpful that the EU are doing so much work on this because they're working through all of those challenges, which is hopefully something we can piggyback off if a group of high emitting jurisdictions who have relatively equivalent carbon pricing ambition can work together on this. It could be a really helpful stepping stone towards global pricing agreements. Right. So you've mentioned COP there, and I have a feeling we're going to know the answer to this question. But in the lead up to COP26, we are now asking all our guests, what is the one thing you want to see come out of the summit? Either a UK announcement or something global. So what is the number one thing that yourself and the Zero Carbon campaign would like to see? I'm I'm going to say one thing, but I think it links to two different things, which is cheating. Um, I would like to see the government demonstrate significant ambition on carbon pricing, leading with the UK and using that as a means to further international ambition. And we've spoken about border adjustments, but for us, we think that's the most helpful conversation that the UK could lead at COP26 would be around a set of principles for multilateral engagement on border adjustments. So it's a fairly complex topic, um, but in a nutshell, we really need a carbon price as part of the arsenal of getting to net zero. Um, And there are ways to introduce a price that is fair and will protect consumers, businesses and farmers from a hefty downside in the short term. Um, So we're obviously sold on the importance and fully support your work. But what can people listening right now do to put their weight behind your campaign? It's a really good question. And thank you to the Green Finance Institute, because not only was uh, Rianne Marie Thomas, your CEO, one of our commissioners, but you've been hugely supportive of the work that we're doing, for which we're very grateful. Um, In terms of supporting our campaign, depending on who you are, there are a few different options. So last week we did launch a government petition. Um, to try and harness public support for a fair carbon price and use that to try and trigger a debate in Parliament on the topic. So I would say number one thing, signing our petition would be really helpful. But um, there's a whole load of other things. I think we're really keen that carbon pricing plays a more dominant role in discussions around decarbonisation policy. I think we're getting there, but because of a lot of the issues that we've discussed, particularly around comprehension, it's not necessarily as far up the agenda as it might be. So we've developed a range of resources to help with this. We've got a beginner's guide to carbon pricing, which is a lot more entertaining than it sounds. Um, And we've got a sort of how to lobby your MP guide as well. The more that MPs hear from us about carbon pricing, particularly with the word fair in there, that as we keep saying is super, super important, the more we think we can further this agenda. So whether it's educating yourself, talking to other people about it or going as far to sign our petition, all of those things are super, super valuable. From a business perspective, we've we've brought together a coalition of businesses supporting the core asks around domestic carbon pricing and ambition at COP26. So if there's an interest from that perspective, get in touch because we'd, we'd love more support. And uh, so far, we've got a good range across lots of different sectors. So we'd, we'd love to keep that going. Perfect. Well, there's lots of ways that people can support the campaign there then. I must say, I've signed the petition. I'm sure Helen has. And we will be making sure that everyone listening needs to get online and sign it as well. Thank you. (laughs) No worries. Well, Hannah, this has been fascinating. And this is honestly such an important topic that we're really happy to be able to give it the airtime and get the message out there. But look, 
best of luck with everything in 2021 and thank you so much for joining us thank you so much for having me thank you there you go some real concrete actions that we can all take um I, I know i'm convinced and it's definitely time to price in externalities and put greater financial responsibility on the polluters so i know i've signed the petition good to hear good to hear um it's really important we get this message home and if we can get everyone listening to rally around this cause then we're definitely achieving something yeah it's one of the really important tools that uh, we have at our disposal to actually reach net zero and as Hannah said, if no one pays, everyone pays. Mm, such a great and memorable point. Glad you brought it up again, Ryan. And if you are interested to learn more, we will be linking to the paper, petition and other relevant documents in the show notes from today's episode. So yeah, let's get some momentum behind it. And talking of forward momentum, um, we've got some great guests lined up in the next few weeks, starting with our next guest, Catherine Howarth, CEO of ShareAction. We'll be talking about the power of stewardship and what asset managers and asset owners can do to better align with a net zero and nature positive future. Yeah, really looking forward to that. But until then, thank you all once again for joining us for this episode of Green is the New Finance. Green is the New Finance is brought to you by the Green Finance Institute with audio production by Fairly Media.